You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, Pepsi, you know, the soft drink or soda pop, depending on what part of the world you're from, well, for a brief moment in history, Pepsi, yes, that Pepsi, had the sixth most powerful military in the world. Between 1861 and 1913, nine of 11 U.S. presidents had facial hair. But since 1913, zero have had facial hair. We investigate the burning question. What happened to the presidential beard? How about when I was depressed in college and I had the Van Buren's? Yeah, I, I didn't know jobs. that. I, I thought that I wasn't allowed to bring that up uh, to anyone You're not, else, but I can't. So. <laughs> no clowning around. And no, it's not a laughing matter. Clown college is harder to get into than Harvard. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, sometimes we pride ourselves on weird things, right? Uh, I mean, like, what is something strange that you do that you're strangely proud of? (laughs) Well, I kind of make driving way harder than it has to be. And what I mean by that is (laughs) that (laughs) I don't use the automatic lights. So I'll only turn on the lights if I feel like I need them. But also... Uh, very rarely do I use the automatic timed windshield wipers. So I'll just wait till there's too much rain and then I'll press wow. down and make the windshield wiper go. And so I know, like zooming out on myself here, I know that that's infuriating to hear because it makes no sense. Well, I didn't think it would take this direction, but that was kind of a cry for help. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see what we can do. But for me, Jay, and I know I've probably been a bit obnoxious with this in the past, but for me, my thing is that I don't drink soda pop anymore okay and I, i'm really proud of that like we're talking 12 years sober. well you really came f- back from you know a lot like you were like smashing dr peppers like crazy i was and, and i've been working really hard on not villainizing people that do I, I mean if i could do it without my heart exploding i'd drink coffee all day but the thing is and jay you just said it well, when i was younger man i would just destroy the dr pepper like it was literally flowing in my veins But while there are plenty of people like me out there, we Americans love our soda pop. In fact, Jay, you ready for this? Here are the top 10 sodas as of fall 2021. Okay, here we go. Number 10, 7-Up. Number 9, Sunkissed. Number 8, Sierra Mist. Number 7, now that's kind of weird, Fanta. I don't really know anybody who drinks Fanta. It's still around. It's huge in Latin American countries. If you go to Latin, and they have a lot of flavors that we don't have here. Okay, that makes sense. Number six, Sprite. Number five, I thought this would be higher, Mountain Dew. Number four, my former love, Dr. Pepper. Number three, with nearly 15 billion in annual sales, Pepsi. Number two, Diet Coke. And number one, the runaway definitive champion with over $36 billion in annual sales, Coca-Cola. Jay, as you can tell from those numbers, people do love their soda pop. But what if you loved soda so much that you were willing to give more than money for it? What if you were willing to give a bunch of military equipment? 
So much military equipment, in fact, that the soda pop we're going to discuss today, Pepsi, briefly became one of the most powerful militaries in the entire world. Jay, Russia has been in the news as of late, not for good reasons, with with its hostile military action that it's thrust upon Ukraine. Just an awful and terribly sad situation. But back in the late 1950s, then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower had a desire to bring American culture to Russia and the then-Soviet Union, hoping to showcase the benefits of capitalism to the Soviets. To aid in this endeavor, the U.S. government arranged something called the American National Exhibition in Moscow that would highlight the benefits of American culture. They then sent your boy, then Vice President Richard Nixon, to facilitate. <laughs> why is he my boy? <laughs> Can we stop for that? Like, why is Richard Nixon my boy? Hey, mate, you tell me. Nixon, the <laughs> kind, generous, and upstanding citizen that he would show himself to be later in life, really, truly an example of self-awareness and self-control, Well, he really botched things in Moscow, getting into an argument with the Soviet leaders over the benefits of capitalism versus communism. In fact, the conversations went so bad and eventually got so heated that another individual who just so happened to be in attendance, the VP of Pepsi, stepped in and offered the Soviet leaders a nice, cold, refreshing Pepsi to help them all just cool down a little bit. And Jay, from there... The Soviets as a whole became quite enamored with Pepsi. It's like their brains had unlocked a new level of joy they didn't know existed. In fact, they loved it so much that they decided they needed it to be offered in Russia on a permanent basis. Only one problem, though. At the time, Russian currency wasn't broadly accepted throughout the world, so there was no way for Russia to pay Pepsi for the soda pipeline that it so desperately wanted. Not to be deterred, though, Jay, the Russians found a band-aid of a solution. Vodka. The Russians could trade vodka, a very hot commodity in the U.S., for the golden elixir of Pepsi. And the fountain drinks and bottles of Pepsi-Cola flowed freely until they didn't. In the late 1980s, things changed. The contract between Pepsi and Russia, exchanging vodka for Pepsi, expired. And because of the rising popularity and price of Pepsi, a new vodka agreement wouldn't totally cover the cost. So, Jay, the Russians did what any sane country would do in such desperate times. They struck up a deal to trade Pepsi something else for its product. An entire fleet of submarines and fighter boats. (laughs) The new agreement sent $3 billion worth of equipment, 17 subs, a cruiser, a frigate, and a destroyer. And the exchange was so large that it actually made Pepsi the sixth most powerful military in the world, if only for a brief moment. Pepsi obviously never utilized its military strength, eventually selling the equipment for scrap recycling. But Jay, the moral of the story is this. When somebody wants a sip of pop, they'll do just about anything, and I mean anything, for a sip of pop. Yeah, imagine being so desperate for Pepsi that you're like, well, I guess we're going to have to mortgage the battleship for it. You know, this uh, the whole scene of uh, the Pepsi uh, VP stepping in and offering a Pepsi to cool down a heated situation. Yeah, like I can imagine that guy stepping in. I can just see him cracking up in the Pepsi. <laughs> Fellas, let's take a step back really quick. <laughs> you're going to want to taste it's it. It's like, it's totally worth it. 
So Dave, uh, you've kind of gone through a couple different phases with your facial hair. You've had a beard, you've had a mustache, but there was a time in your life uh, in the not so distant past where you were kind of going through something emotionally and it uh, sort of uh, Im- <laughs> sort of came out uh, in you shaving your beard into these like very large uh, mutton chops. We called them the Van Burens after Martin Van Buren, President of the United States. Yeah, there's only one known picture of them, uh, and I don't think I can get it erased from uh, from the internet. But yeah, I'd gone through a breakup, long term girlfriend. You know, you just your brain does weird things after that, and for some reason, and I just you were thought, like, "This will be a good idea. This will <laughs> fix it. This will fix everything." And yeah, obviously, it was a terrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> so, Dave, when you think about presidents, a lot of images come to mind. But at least for the last hundred years or so, none of our presidents have sported facial hair. So think about that. You know, you think about presidents, you think about your history textbooks, whatever, um, and images come to mind. But really, I mean, we're, we're over 100 years now. We haven't had a president with any facial hair whatsoever. Uh, in fact, Dave, the last president to have consistent facial hair was William Howard Taft in 1913. And even past the Oval Office, among senators, representatives, really at all levels of politics, the beard is a rarity. But in a much bigger sense, the wearing of facial hair has underwent some societal changes even past politics. So according to Business Insider, about 90% of men wore facial hair in the late 1800s. Societally, this was a trend, and it showed up in politics. Presidents like Lincoln, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, and Harrison all served during the mid to late 1800s and all wore beards. In fact, they've between 1861 and 1913, nine of 11 U.S. presidents had beards. So then the question we have is why did these trends shift? Why did facial hair fall out of fashion, but particularly among American politicians? Well, it's kind of complicated. Beards, at least in society, began to be associated with masculinity during this era of the late 1800s, and society responded to the trend by embracing the beard. Well, then what changed? Sociologists Rebecca Herrick, Jeanette Mendez, and Ben Pryor conducted a study to investigate the impact on how we perceive the image of politicians and then attempted to measure judgments we make on their appearance alone. So the researchers showed photographs of politicians with and without facial hair who looked very similar and then asked participants to measure their perceptions of these men. So they found through this research that, one, people tended to perceive men that had facial hair as more masculine. And while this initially doesn't seem like a bad thing, it gets sort of tricky when you know that they also found that higher ratings of masculinity were correlated with higher perceptions of competence, but also higher levels of concern that these politicians were less friendly to women and less likely to protect the interests of women. So basically, Dave, the more facial hair, the more people worry about a politician being sexist. Now, the researchers also followed this up by examining male voting records and then running it against whether or not they had a beard and found that there is no relationship between a man's facial hair and their voting record. But when campaigns are run, these are the types of data points that go into deciding how to present a candidate to the world. You know, politicians need to appeal to the general audience of the U.S., and these are the types of edges that matter. In fact, Taft, who had a beard in 1913, served just a few years before women won the right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. 
Running a political campaign meant appealing to a wider pool of voters after that. Then as photography and then the television and then ultimately the internet emerged, image matters more now than it ever has. We, across all genders, education levels, and socioeconomic statuses, base our votes on a lot of factors, but physical appearance is included in that. How you looked, at least in the late 1800s, that wasn't really taken into much consideration as it is today, mostly because Americans back then, they didn't really see the president like they do now. Even past the political world uh, through the 20th century, American professionals across the board started eliminating the beard from white-collar professions. Showing up to the office unshaven was associated with laziness, and this obviously translated to the voting booth, too. Now, although the beard has re-emerged into our culture today, uh, beards are actually very common for men now. That has not translated to Congress or the White House. Uh, in fact, right now in Congress, less than 5% of men have beards. Uh, Ted Cruz, I think, went through like a weird little phase, maybe kicked it up to 6%, but I think he shaved it off by now. The largest pool of American voters today are elderly, and fair or not, beards are still associated with certain stereotypes among the elderly. So until those stereotypes change, maybe as younger generations today get older, for instance, I don't think we'll be seeing bearded politicians anytime soon. How funny would it be, though, if Joe Biden had a little, little goatee? Yeah, it's almost like you can't picture it. Like, imagine if, like, we elect somebody, and then, like, two years into their term, they just come out and they have a goatee. Now, in 2016, GQ did a um, ranking of the American presidents with facial hair. Grant's got to be one. Top two. So so number two was, was Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. With that okay, that makes mustache. sense. And number one, Ulysses S. Grant. You're right. His beard is perfect. It is. It matches personality, though. You know, Civil War general and all that. It checks out. It's like he has pomade in it, though. And Jay, to wrap us up this week, and I, I do acknowledge that we've discussed clowns an alarming amount of times now on Compute, but always for good reason, right? I mean, we talked about Ronald McDonald on episode nine, way back in March of 2021. The clown from It has come up a lot through our first 56 episodes, but we've never talked about this What's your relationship with clowns? You like them? You scared of them? You don't care? You're indifferent? <laughs> I really just have no opinion. <laughs> for I mean, some reason, that is that's <laughs> I mean, perfectly on brand for you that you wouldn't have an opinion about clowns. <laughs> I don't have a position. I mean, well, well, clowning is no laughing matter, as we'll get to in just a minute. But when I think about clowns, Jay, my mind almost always goes back to the state fair. Okay, so I haven't been to the state fair in the state that I grew up in in forever. But there used to be a dunking booth right when you walked in, and a guy named something like Bing Bong the Insult Clown <laughs> sat in the dunking chair. And Jay, insult clown he was. He would hurl insults at people as they walked into the fair. And dude, these were brutal. He'd make fun of people's weight. He'd make fun of their clothes. He'd also make fun of things that you couldn't help. Like he'd make fun of your nose, your height. He was especially hard on bald men. Man, I bet he made so much money, though. To be honest, he's either in jail or dead now from someone getting <laughs> fired up over it. And while I'm not so sure that Bing Bong had formal clown training, and honestly, with the disappearance of the circus over the last few years, we don't see clowns like we used to, but Jay, true clowns go to college. 
And while the original famed Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College shut its doors in 1997, there are still plenty of options to learn the formal art of clowning around the U.S., whether it's the Clown School in L.A., the Circus Center in San Francisco, or the Cheerful Clowns Alley's Clown College in Houston, Texas, getting into Clown College is no joke. So, Jay, what does it take? Well, for starters, the rumors are true. Getting into Clown College is hard. In fact, most clown colleges are more difficult to get into, at least in terms of acceptance rate, than Harvard. It's reported that less than 1% of clown college applicants get into the best clown colleges. And once you're in, that's when things really get difficult. The famed Barnum and Bailey Clown College was often referred to as a version of Navy boot camp. The handful of (laughs) successful applicants to the school, and we're talking like 60 out of nearly 7,000 applicants, learned everything from hard skills like juggling chainsaws, unicycling, and stilt walking, to soft skills like makeup design and the basics of being, well, funny. Students would work 14 hours per day, six days a week, for the first five weeks of the college session to choreograph their best act. They'd practice workshopping their jokes, costumes, and performance pieces. From there, though, only a handful, as in like a couple, would be offered apprentice-level clown jobs after they showcased their act, and those apprentice-level jobs would lead them into the circus, where they'd learn the profession from the sidelines. And they'd remain an apprentice and travel with the circus for years before earning the right to actually be one of the clowns that performs in front of the crowds. And Jay, while the Barnum and Bailey College went away with the formal traveling circus, the schools that do still exist offer a very difficult path for the chosen few. Like take clown Wayne Wilson, for example, a clown that has spent time with the famed Cirque du Soleil. Wilson told Vice that clowning is hard in its own entirely unique way, which ultimately is what makes it such a rewarding profession. Here we work 10 hours a day for six days a week. Wilson told Vice, it's a major strain on your body and a massive exhaustion. But the exhaustion is good for you. It makes you vulnerable, and that's when clowns are at their best. And outside of becoming a clown, which I've now told you is not all that easy, there's the actual life of being a clown. Whether people are scared of you or think you're just a joke, and not a joke in a way that's funny for both of you, it's a uniquely fringe profession. And with the vanishing act of the traveling circus, clown opportunities are getting harder and harder to come by for clown college graduates. And there's no easy fix for the reputation problems that follow around our clowny friends. I always quote the word when I say clowning, said Wilson. There's a big stigma around that word. I'll say it in the right circles, but I won't say it in others. In the U.S., I say clown and people just think of axe murderers or rapists. So, Jay, if you could go back and do it again, would you go to clown college? You know, I know you're trying to convince me that this is a this super difficult profession to get into. And I am convinced, by the way. But it's also very hard to take it seriously when you keep calling it clowning. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you prefer, acting? I also picture that as they're on this boot camp, uh, which I 
which I uh, see as just this like grueling physical training that they're all wearing these gigantic shoes that squeak. I just can't get it out of my head. You just see like the atmosphere is really stressed. They come out to do their performance. Everyone's sweating. The judges have these like scowls on their face, and then this music starts playing. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> like I get it. It's it's this crazy hard profession to break into, but like we're zooming out. Like they're they're still clowns. You know what I mean? And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, I'm Dave Trump. We'll see you next week.